0: The following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. The writer of Ecclesiastes who calls himself the preacher is on the search for wisdom. As we've been saying, Ecclesiastes is one of these books in the Bible that's known as the wisdom books. And I kind of said it at the beginning of our series, but I'll say it again, that wisdom is not the same as knowledge. It's not. Um, You can be knowledgeable in all kinds of things, from computer programming to medicine to accounting to education and on and on. You can be an expert In all kinds of fields of knowledge, but still lack wisdom according to the Bible, according to God's perspective. Just because you're knowledgeable doesn't mean you're wise. In a way, maybe we could define wisdom like this. Wisdom is discernment, which enables us to live a God-honoring life as it's repeated throughout Scripture, that the beginning of knowledge of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And when we're talking about discernment which enables us to live a God-honoring life, what we're in essence saying is that wisdom is not head knowledge. It is applied knowledge that affects the entire course of your life. In other words, there's no such thing as theoretical wisdom. If you have wisdom, if you possess it, It will show itself in your life. There will be evidence to demonstrate that you are wise. It will affect the choices that you make. It will affect the words that you use. It will affect every relationship in your life. The perspectives that you hold deep in your heart. Wisdom affects all of that. Now, here is a truth that I think is hard to refute. Nobody ever prays for more common sense. Do you? <laughs> I mean, have you ever prayed to God for more common sense? I don't think there's a Christian alive that ever has done this. Why not? Well, because the truth is, I don't think any of us feel like we're very deficient in this category, right? Um, Listen, I know that common sense is not really a biblical term, all right? You don't, you don't find this in the Bible. But the reason why I use this word common sense is because when I say that we feel that we have enough common sense, I think in truth what we're really saying is I have enough wisdom, meaning I know how to manage my own life. Okay, fine. If you're going to grill me about Bible facts and about the minor prophets, you're going to catch me. I admit I'm, I'm dumb. You know, or if you want to test me on electro electrical mechanics or electrical, don't know say, electrical engineering or mechanical engineering or medicine or any other kind of science, fine, I got a C in chemistry, I admit it. But when it comes to this idea of common sense, I, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. I know how to live my life. You know, You may watch a YouTube video to figure out how to lay bathroom tile because you've never done it before. You may take an online course to learn about personal finance management and investing for your retirement. We buy cookbooks so that we can become better chefs. But when it comes to the most fundamental choices that govern our lives, from the way that we treat other people, to the way that we spend our time and money, to the thoughts that control us. The truth is, most of us don't welcome outside advice, and we don't really seek help from other people. It's usually not until we're in a moment of crisis, when our entire life is falling apart around us, when we have to declare bankruptcy, or our marriage is a falling apart, or our children are going astray, that we come to a place of enough humility To actually look for help and acknowledge our need for more wisdom. But this is precisely where biblical wisdom must have a voice in our lives. In these areas where we think we're fine, where we've got a handle on our lives. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. That's the invitation of God to all of us. When you come to that place where you're humble enough to acknowledge your lack of wisdom, know that you can come to God and ask Him for it, and He will grant it to you. And I want to ask you that this morning before we go any further. Do you have the humility to acknowledge your need for more wisdom? Or do you feel like you're doing okay? I can manage my own life. I can figure it out on my own. I don't know how many of you guys have seen this movie about Schmidt. I'm in this whole video tear, okay? So I think Ecclesiastes is going to be known as the movie series or something like that. Um, Don't get used to it because it's not going to go on forever, okay? Um, About Schmidt tells the story of this character named Warren Schmidt, who is an actuary Uh, and he's just retired after giving his entire life to serving this Woodman Insurance Company in Omaha, Nebraska. If you know this director, Alexander Payne, he sets all of his movies in Nebraska and uh, uses it really as a a character in his movies. Um, Several days into Schmidt's retirement, uh, he decides to sponsor a child in Africa. And so he fills out the forms, he makes the phone call. And throughout the rest of the movie, uh, it shows these correspondences that Warren Schmidt has with his foster child in Africa. And the clip that I want to show you comes from the uh, first letter that he writes to his African foster boy named Ndugu, interestingly which in Swahili means brother. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. It's a lot to unload on a six-year-old in Africa. (laughs) Having entered the final season of his life, Warren Schmidt is forced to take a hard and honest look at himself and the things that he lived for. The company to which he has dedicated his entire life has already moved on without him just days after his retirement. Walking by the office one day, he finds that his entire catalog of files, meticulously kept in boxes in his office, have already been thrown into the dumpster and tossed away. Decades of his life work just trashed. But more importantly, Schmidt discovers the hard truth about his relationships, the ones that mattered the most in his life, as he's forced to face his deficiencies as a husband and as a father. He discovers his inability to appreciate the devotion and service of his faithful wife who had given him love all of these years, and yet instead he just resented her. He discovers his anger and emotional aloofness that has estranged him from his daughter, that he dotes on but barely knows. When he decides to visit her, you could tell that she doesn't want him to come. In his final letter to Ndugu, this African orphan, um, Schmidt writes, I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? I am weak, and I am a failure. There's just no getting around it. Relatively soon, I will die. Once I am dead, and everyone who knows me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. Hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. In his journey, Schmidt is pressed to gain wisdom about his life. But this is not a lesson he receives very willingly. Like all of us, he is stubborn, he blames everything else. And what about you? What is it going to look like when you enter the final season of your life and you look back at everything that you have lived for? Will you enter the twilight of your life with gratitude and a smile? Or are you in for a rude awakening and heartbreak? This is what we want to talk about in the message today, when we think about what we're really living for and particularly applying it to the relationships in our life. Just like the last message I preached, the text for our morning is gonna seem like randomly cobbled together wisdom sayings that don't have any relationship to one another. But hopefully as we unpack things, you'll see a common theme emerging from the preacher's teaching. And he begins it in Ecclesiastes 3.16 with these words, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And then again in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he goes on and he says, Again, I saw all the oppression, oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. The preacher points out the brutality of the world in which we all live. All of the injustices and suffering that surround us Wickedness seems to go unpunished. The righteous suffer. And where is God to hear any of their prayers? Where is God's justice? There is nothing sugar-coated about the preacher's assessment of the world as he sees it, and frankly, his assessment of God at times. God, frankly, sometimes you seem like an absentee landlord who has just checked out of here. And it's hard to believe that you are really listening to us that you even care. Taken at face value, the preacher goes as far as to say that maybe even the dead are better off than the living because they are set free from the suffering that we go through in this life. Now, that's pretty dark stuff, isn't it? But without God in the picture, I think many people have wrestled with the same question. Can life get so bad that you wonder if it's even worth living that maybe death is even a better alternative than life and all of us have been mourning the loss of uh, Robin Williams right famous comedian and actor who seemed to have lived a charmed life and had it all but even in that life did not find it worth living and so the preacher anchors himself to the only hope that he can find in this darkness. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The preacher clings to God's promise that one day he will set everything straight according to his justice. And this is a truth that can only be embraced by faith because when we look into the world often god's justice seems to be absent we don't see the reality of it in the timing that we would like jeffrey myers says this walking by faith is even more frustrating than groping for a light in the in a dark room according to solomon there is no light switch in the darkness But you must make your way by listening to a voice tell you that there is a good reason for the furniture that obstructs your path, even though you can detect no pattern to it. Worse, the voice claims it is good for you to bruise your shins, even though there is no way to see how the pain could be beneficial. What a vivid picture Myers paints for us. Walking by faith sounds so poetic, but in truth, it's not easy at all. It's like, as he says, stumbling around in a dark room and bumping into furniture and getting bumps and bruises while you're trying to follow God's voice, trying to make some sense of why God has designed life like this. Life is brutal not only because of the suffering and injustice, but the preacher goes on, and he says, because of the shadow of death that haunts us all. Ecclesiastes 3 18 to 21. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Really dark stuff. I think you guys need to pump yourselves up before you come on these Sunday mornings for the series of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, you don't get too depressed. It sounds like the preacher is basically saying that there's no difference between us and animals. That we're just all animals, like Darwin. Darwin. But if you look more closely at his words, what he's really trying to point out is this commonality is our mortality. Our mortality. That all of us are going to die one day like animals, and none of us are going to escape that death. And as he points out in the last verse, death is such a terror because we can't see with our own eyes what lies beyond the grave. It's interesting, um, I was recently driving home from a funeral service uh, with my daughter, Bethany, and while we were riding in the car, uh, I asked Bethany, uh, what are you going to say about me at my funeral when I die, if you have the opportunity to give my eulogy? <laughs> this is what Bethany replied, I'm not going to tell you now, it's going to be a surprise. <laughs> Well, I didn't really know how to reply to that. Um, There's no experiment that we can run to definitively prove the afterlife is there. There There's this interesting doctor named Duncan McDougall, who back in the early 1900s conducted these morbid experiments where you put a bed on a scale and thought that he could weigh the human soul. And so when these patients expired, right at the moment of death, he saw if there were any deflections in the scale. And what he realized was that each body was 21 grams lighter after death, and said the weight of the soul is 21 grams. Only problem is that there were all kinds of experimental errors in the way that he conducted his experiment. And so nobody really knows, and it's too morbid to repeat that experiment, so nobody wants to do it. We have these books like Heaven is for Real, and again, it seems to suggest maybe some people have gone and come back and sharing their stories, but it, honestly, even as a Christian, in my heart, I just don't know what to make of these testimonies. I really don't know. I wasn't there. All I can do is base it on what they're telling me happens when you die. But just as with God's justice, what we have is the promise of God, that there is a life beyond the grave. And that is what we are called to obey, is simply a promise. And that takes faith. Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies." That is what we have to hold on to in this life. The promise of Jesus Christ that when we die, there is a life to come. And so it is by faith and faith alone that we can face death without fear. Well, the preacher then paints another picture for us after talking about the brutality of life. about a person that is entirely consumed by his work. And I don't think that's by accident that he's connecting these two things. And he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving of the wind. The motivation behind his frantic work is that he envies others. He's jealous In this perspective, in this man's perspective, life is a competition, and everyone else is somebody to be beaten. And the preacher goes on in verses 7 to 8, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling, and depriving myself of pleasure. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Building on what he said earlier in chapter 4, the preacher paints a fuller picture of a person that is so consumed with this desire for wealth that he has basically isolated himself from any sense of community. He is utterly alone. He is an island. He has nobody that he is living for but himself. In contrast to this kind of life, the preacher offers these words of wisdom in verses 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand, withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, this passage is read at weddings all the time, isn't it? But the preacher is not talking specifically about marriage here. He's talking more generally about the community that you build around yourself, which includes all of your relationships, your spouse, your children, your relatives, your friends, your fellow church members. And it's important to remember the context in which he's talking about this. He has just talked about the brutality of life, how difficult life under the sun can be. And then he paints the picture of a life that is selfish and consumed by personal agendas and has no room for other people. And then finally, he paints this picture of being in relationship with other people. And in essence, this is what I think the preacher is saying. Life is tough. Life is incredibly difficult. And in order to make it through this life, you need community. You need other people. You cannot go it alone. You cannot be that lone ranger. You were not designed like that. You were designed to be in relationships. In other words, we need community because life is hard. And we need the support of others. You see it throughout the passage. If somebody falls, there will be somebody else to pick him up. When it is cold, you can snuggle together and keep each other warm. When you cannot prevail against an enemy, you can join forces and overcome that challenge. It's over and over again. None of us are strong enough to make it on our own. This is talking not about casual acquaintances. And probably for a lot of you, you may be thinking in this room, I don't really need this message today because I've got friends. I'm doing okay. But the truth is we have a lot of superficial relationships that are largely centered around things like sports or eating out or common interests. But what the preacher is talking about is a friend that is going to be there to catch you when you fall. When everyone else has turned their back on you, that person is going to be there. That person will stick it out through thick and thin, through the greatest storm. And here is the question. That I want to ask you today. Do you have a friend like that in your life? Even one? Even one person that you can go to when your world is falling apart around you. If you look at verses 4-1, looking at the people that he pities, he says, Again, I saw the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed. And what is so sad about these people, he says, is not just that they're being oppressed, but they have nobody to comfort them. They're alone in their oppression. They're isolated, so they have to go through it by themselves. That's what he sees as so pathetic about their situation. In essence, if you take a step back, what the preacher, I believe, is doing for us is painting a picture of two different paths in life. One path leads you to loneliness and isolation. It is a path of greed and jealousy and competitiveness and selfishness, of taking instead of giving, and using others instead of serving them. It's the path of seeing relationships as of secondary importance or even unnecessary in your life. And the other path is a path that leads to true community and the support of others. It is the path of choosing friendships and relationships over personal goals and agendas. It is a path of valuing and pursuing others as of first importance in your life. And the preacher basically is arguing, faced at the fork in the road with these two paths, always choose the path that brings you to true community in your life. Choose community every time. The battle to choose between these two paths is being waged in every one of our hearts all the time. Edward Hollowell at Harvard Medical School points out that there are two primary drives in every human being, and that is of achieving and connecting. These are the two prime motivators that drive all of us, almost all of our behavior. Achieving has to do with accomplishments, pursuing excellence, reaching goals, overcoming obstacles and challenges. Connecting has to do with our relationships, falling in love, forming lasting friendships, bonding with your children. And almost everything you do in your life could fall under one of these two big buckets. You're either trying to achieve or you're trying to connect. And in an ideal world, these two ought to work hand in hand with each other. That everything that we try to achieve in life ought to be for the greater good of the community that we're building. But in our fallen world, achieving and connecting often work against each other, don't they? And the truth is, achieving is often given greater status than connecting in American society today. John Orberg writes, The 20th century has, was littered with people who achieved great things but never connected. People who accumulated vast amounts of wealth, fame, or power, but never acquired an open heart. People who had a Rolodex of contacts, but not a single friend. Every one of them died with bitter regrets, every one. Conversely, I have never known anyone who succeeded at relationships, who cultivated great friendships, who was devoted to their family, who mastered the art of giving and receiving love, yet had a bad life. No matter how, mon- how little money we have, no matter what rung we occupy on anyone's corporate ladder of success, in the end, what everybody discovers is that what matters is other people. Human beings who give themselves to relational greatness, who have friends they laugh with, cry with, learn with, fight with, dance with, live and love and grow old and die with, these are the human beings who lead magnificent lives. When they die, not one of them regrets having devoted themselves to people, their friends, their neighbors, their children, their family, not one. I think all of us recognize the truth being spoken here. But at the same time, we all find it very difficult to live our lives according to it, don't we? Because the truth is, we're often willing to sacrifice community for the sake of achievement. This um, woman named Marla Paul, she was a very accomplished professional, was a successful columnist published in many major newspapers. But to everyone's surprise, one day she wrote this article for the Chicago Tribune in which she confessed much to her embarrassment, her struggle with loneliness. Having moved to a different state and now working from home, she found herself in a situation where she wasn't quite sure she could really call out a single true friend that she had in her life at that point in her life. And in that article, Marla Paul writes, The loneliness saddens me. How did it happen that I could be 42 years old and not have enough friends? It seems as if every woman's friendship quota has been filled and she is no longer accepting new applicants. And in the column, she wrestles with this nagging feeling that there is something flawed in her, something broken that has made her life this way. And at the end of the column, she writes, I think there are women out there who don't know how lonely they are. It's easy enough to fill up the day with work and family. But no matter how much I enjoy my job and love my husband and child, they are not enough. I recently read my daughter Hans Christian Andersen's The Ugly Duckling. I felt an immediate kinship with this bird who flies from place to place, looking for the creatures with whom he belongs. He eventually finds them. I hope I do too. Within days of this column being published by the Chicago Tribune, The newspaper was inundated with phone calls and letters from readers confessing their struggles with loneliness, too. Lee Strobel writes, "Okay, I'll admit it. There have been times in my life when I've been profoundly lonely. Despite a flourishing career, lots of good acquaintances, and a fulfilling marriage, I've slogged through er eras when I've ached for a friend to whom I could bear my soul. I can personally attest to the biblical truth that human beings were not designed to live relationally disconnected lives. As outrageous as it may sound, we will never feel whole until we experience community, first with God and then with other people. Without that, we inevitably sense something deeply awry in the depths of our soul. Let me just ask you that this morning. Do you struggle with loneliness? Have you ever struggled with loneliness? I think the truth is none of us want to admit we're lonely because, frankly, that's a problem for losers and misfits, isn't it? I mean, if you tell someone, I'm lonely, it makes you look so pathetic. Like, what's wrong with you? Get a friend. But the truth is, I think loneliness is a lot more real than we care to admit. Why is it that we long so much For connection and yet at the same time struggle so much to find it well what the Bible tells us is that when sin entered our world it not only broke our relationship with God but it broke our relationship with one another and we see that the moment sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and they sinned against God what happened not only did they hide from God but they turned on one another And Adam, instead of protecting his wife, threw her under the bus and blamed her. She did it, God. Punish her, not me. And it's within one generation that the first murder happens in human history as Cain kills his brother Abel, enraged with jealousy against him. And from that generation on to our very own, human history has been marked by an utter collapse of community, our utter inability to live with one another and accept each other and care for each other. And each of us is isolated in our own silos, desperate for that connection. And yet we are our own worst enemies, undermining the very thing that we desperately seek. But what the Bible also tells us is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He not only restored and healed that broken relationship with God, but He healed our relationship with others. And now through the church of Jesus Christ that was birthed through that cross, He gives us the gift of community. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you hear that? Through the church, God's wisdom is being accomplished. Meaning, He didn't call you out of darkness to live as His disciples in isolation. But in calling you, He has called you to be part of a community, to experience His love through our love for one another, to experience His comforting hand through the way that we comfort one another, to find His strength in our mutual strength. When one person falls, there is someone to catch them. When somebody is cold, we can warm them. When someone is overwhelmed, we can band together and find victory as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jeffrey Myers writes, We are incorporated into a society when we are saved, into a new humanity, which is the body of Christ, the church. There is really no such thing as isolated, saved individuals. I want to say this. If community was easy, I don't think the preacher would be calling us to seek it, it would be automatic. There is a cost to community. There is. I acknowledge that. When, we pre- when I preach through Ephesians, one of the things I said over and over again in that series is church is going to be the most difficult thing you ever attempt as a Christian. It really is. So much so that many Christians just feel like, can't I just listen to a bunch of podcasts and do quiet time and just be left alone? Because it's just so hard. It is so hard. And I sympathize with that. And yet at the same time, We can't avoid this teaching in Scripture. That we were called by God to be in community with one another. And as long as we avoid that in order to avoid the headache and avoid the pain and avoid the commitment, we're avoiding an essential element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and the blessing that God wants to give in your life. Listen. I am not saying that the church is perfect. Far from it. And listen, if you want to have a meeting with me and complain and have a a session where you just tell me everything wrong with Emmanuel, I'll listen, and I'll probably nod my head and go, I could add 10 things to your list, okay? I acknowledge that. But there is still something about church that is so vital and precious that I believe doesn't exist in any other earthly community. And that is the redemptive, transformative power of God that is at work in his people. Diedrich Bonhoeffer writes Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. I love this quote. You know, you're so idealistic about the church that all you do is complain about the church and find fault in the church. But the church is not an ideal, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. It's not a theory. It's flawed people coming together and seeking community. And whenever we do that, that's going to be messy. And yet there is this grace of God that becomes the foundation by which we can truly experience that community. And I want to just close by saying this. Almost every choice that you make in your life is leading you either closer to or further away from community in your life. And in this message today, I just want to invite you to reflect on that truth in your own life. When you feel slighted, when you feel betrayed or wronged, when you feel rejected or excluded, when you feel angry, every moment like that, you are faced with a choice. I can either choose community or I can choose myself. And I think the gospel tells us resoundingly, choose community because this is the way you have been designed. And Christ purchased that community with his own blood. He not only healed the alienation, that you are experiencing with God, but He healed it with one another. Let us pray. I'll make a confession with you. Um, For the five years that I've been pastor of this church, I've not really been a part of the small group system at our church. I've kind of been skirting that ministry in our church because I've always kind of hidden behind the excuse that I'm just too busy. I mean, I'm burning the candle on both ends, and I just cannot afford to add one more thing to my plate. So I've really resisted joining a small group in our church. But in the last several months, I acknowledged my own need for this community and have joined a small group. And I've got to tell you honestly, I feel it's one of the best decisions that I've made since coming to Emmanuel is to join a small group. And I got to be honest with you though, there are some Fridays like this last Friday where I was like, I need to work on my sermon. Maybe I'll tell Betty to go and I'll just uh, excuse myself. But then I was like, nah, you know, I'm not going to start going down this road. And I went and I was so glad that I went because we had an opportunity to share with our community together, to laugh together, to study the word together, to pray together together to confess together. Even I as your pastor need this. All of us need this. But here is the truth. Is there some dark part in all of us that keeps resisting community, isn't there? We make every excuse to push it away from us. Because in truth, we find life a lot cleaner, a lot simpler when we live it in isolation. And we don't have to enter into the messiness of relationships, But I think what the Bible is telling us is that's not the way God designed us. You were not made to live your life like this. You may be more lonely than you've ever realized or are willing to admit about your life. Some of you may even be married and have kids and you're just busying yourself with that life. But you know, that's not even enough. You need connection in your life. And it's a very deep in profound ways and maybe this day the Holy Spirit is nudging you and challenging you and inviting you to say my plan for you is not the life that you're living right now I want to bless you I want to love on you by giving you brothers and sisters in Christ that can be there and truth is they're gonna hurt you at times and they're not always going to get it right. And they may not be there every time, but instead of stamping your feet and say, I told you, I knew this is exactly what was going to happen if I stuck my neck out there and made myself vulnerable. It's very easy, as Bonhoeffer says, to point fingers at the church and accuse the church. But I think the way to respond to this message today is not to point the finger at other people and blame them for why they're not providing community for you, but it's to look inwardly at our own hearts and come to that place of saying, what am I running away from? What is it in me that is resisting what God wants to do? And maybe that could lead us to a prayer this morning to simply say, God, change my heart, break my heart, humble me, and teach me how much I need other people. And give me the courage to make myself vulnerable to these relationships and to even seek them out in my life. We're going to take communion in just a little bit, but before we do, we're going to sing one song together before we come to the Lord's table. So let's join together with the worship team as they lead us.